Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We've an episode of Tilly's Fiction Addiction. Summaries of the Century. And looking at Golden Books. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Thank you very much to Deborah for fabulous Your Life, Your Way today. And uh, and good morning, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, uh, Heather. Good morning to you. And how are you today? Oh, very well indeed. Have you had an exciting week? No. Oh. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> of course you've all. had an exciting week. No, you had no, a delightful weekend. I had a very nice weekend um, uh, and uh, having uh, attended a, a very good friend's, a very dear friend's uh, birthday party down in Pangbourne. And then, of course, like everybody else in the country, sort of sweltering in my part of the world down here in, in Kent and as as we are here in Berkshire as well. But no, it's been it's been good. Um, and looking forward to the sunshine coming out. It's a bit instead of these overcast but muggy days. Oh, yes. Although I quite like it being cooler. Anyway, we are not complaining. No, we're not. We um, don't. So every week on Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books that we We've enjoyed from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you want to know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Yes, indeed. And as usual, we have an hour crammed full of goodies for you today. And as Heather mentioned earlier, we, uh, Tilly Brogan will be joining us with her her section, uh, Tilly's Fiction Addiction. And this week, she's going to be exploring the themes in Conversation with Friends by the author Sally Rooney. Yeah. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at summer reads because it's summer holidays. And this time, we've actually gone back to the start of the summer century and over the last 20 years or so spotting those big blockbuster hits of the summer how many have you read well, indeed, indeed, indeed. And uh, Heather and I uh, will be recommending a book apiece on the subject of gold later on in the programme. Yes, we will. But to start the show, as always, we've been scouring the papers to stop to spot interesting book news for you. So let's just start with that quick roundup of great book stories that we've spotted in the news recently. Julian, what have you spotted? Sorry, I was, just, I was just having a bit of a giggle there with your, with you when you said we've been scouring the pages to stop you reading about Yes. <laughs> Well, yes, actually, we are going up. to stop you because we'll, we're finding them all. We'll find it for you, yes. You don't need to worry about that. We'll bring you the unless, news. Unless, of course, you want, to send well, some, unless you want to send something into us. Yes, exactly, listeners or listener. Yes, please do. If you've got a little bit of a, a news item you found in the paper or a magazine or, or about books, just, just email us. Now, this one came up, which is really very interesting, and it's, it's actually to do with cookery books. Ah, this is right uh, up your cook, street, cook, isn't it? Dying, pardon? Right up your street. Yes. Yes, 
it is. And these are really very interesting because there's a cookbook from 1747 that uh, apparently contains the first known English recipe for curry. Uh, and it's set to fetch um, around about £4,000 in auction. Now, bearing you know, so that's 1747 and they're writing about curry. Now, there's one um, dish which is described as curry the Indian way. And interestingly, curry being spelled with an E. Um, so it's C-U-R-R-E-Y. Anyway, this one, this curry calls for rabbit or fowl and includes onions, coriander seeds, but really interestingly, no ginger, no garlic and no chilies. And then there's also a recipe for pilau, which includes really rather extravagantly, I think, pickled pork, fowl, cloves, white pepper, onions and rice topped with hard-boiled eggs. Isn't that like ketchery? That yes, but interesting. This well, it is. But interestingly, this one they're they're obviously suggesting, but has no fish in it, because Kedri usually has fish. Yeah, or the versions we know. Anyway, the book the book is called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. And it was said to have been bought in a in a, a London China shop 275 years ago. Now, why a China shop? I don't know. Um, but at the same um in the same sale, there's another interesting book called The French Cook, written in 1651 by the founding um father of French cuisine, a gentleman called Pierre Le Varenne, and it's considered to be one of the most influential cookbooks of its day and was still in use up until the French Revolution. Now, this one, another interesting book, which was a really snappy title, uh, was written by a physician called Dr. Daniel Duncan, who was born in 1649, warning readers about the dangers of tea and coffee and hot chocolate. Now, as I say, he he published it under this very, very snappy title, which was Wholesome Advice Against the Abuse of Hot Liquors, Particularly of Coffee, Chocolate, Tea, Brandy and Strong Waters. (laughs) I like the way it's the abuse of. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) So obviously there was a lot of abuse going on even in those days. (laughs) Giving the coffee a good whipping or so. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Uh, And now the book was written at a time when some physicians considered exotic drinks such as tea and coffee to be detrimental to your health. Fantastic. That's really, Mm. really good. So this is just a little one. I just came across a great quote by Mark Twain the other day. So the American author defined a classic work of literature as something that everyone wants to have have read but no one wants to read what do <laughs> we what do we reckon i think that's that's not true <laughs> oh i don't well, i don't know i can actually i i think i can sympathize I and mean, you can also uh, you can also apply that to some of the very early booker prize winners in the past where that's everybody true. aspired to buy it and then never read it <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, now, one one which is a little bit um, it has a has 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 a literary link, uh, a little bit more. They're sobering, but uh, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which um, if, if 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 you don't know, um, is locally headquartered in Maidenhead down the road, and it does a fabulous job of caring for the monuments to those who lost their lives um, in uh, the First and Second World Wars, and they ensure their sacrifice uh, is not forgotten. Now, recently the the finding rest place of a, of a British army officer related to the poet William Wordsworth has been marked with a headstone after he was killed in the First World mm-hmm. War. Now, the, uh, the, the officer was Lieutenant Osmond Bartle Wordsworth, who had survived the sinking of RMS Lusitania and had been lost since he fell at the Battle of Arras on the Western Front in 1917. Um, he was shot through the heart as he rushed forward to help a machine gun crew get into 
position. Now, his body was placed by his men in an unmarked grave and remained, <clears throat> uh, which is quite, which is known and quite known unto God. And he rested there for the next century. Now, after some amazing detective work um, that followed the discovery of his remains by a French farmer in 2013, using some uh, cloth, metal buttons in the presence of a sword clip, um, the records were searched and uh, to identify the officer before DNA samples were obtained by a living relative to confirm his wow, remains. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, isn't, isn't it? incredible. And it's now been officially, he's been officially identified as the great, great nephew of the English poet um, Wordsworth and given a proper headstone. Oh, and I have to say, Heather, um, whenever I see these beautifully laid out cemeteries, <clears throat> I tend to get very teary-eyed because I think the work that the Walgraves Commission does is absolutely fantastic. You know, keeping the memory alive. And we salute you. It's fantastic work. I totally agree. We always, whenever we go to a, um, a church and we notice there's a wall grave in the mm. church, then we'll always go and yes. say thank you. Yes, um, and, and read the names. And read the and, names and, and yes. how old they were. They were always yes. so young. Um, yes, and, and realising, you know, um, how many, you know, Polish um, oh, pilots yes. or soldiers, yes. um, you know, from all over the world that, 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 that came to assist. Yes. And, and, they're, and they're very moving, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, on a lighter note, mm-hmm. it's congratulations to Country Life magazine, which is celebrating its 125th anniversary this week as part of the celebrations the duchess of cornwall was a guest editor herself celebrating her 75th birthday and uh, keeping it in the family the duchess of cambridge was commissioned to take the front cover photograph of camilla in her garden for the publication um but 125 years as a magazine that's incredible isn't it it is it is exactly uh, very much indeed um, now, a rather interesting letter um, from the creator of Thomas the Tank Engine, the Reverend Wilbur Audrey, has been found um, bemoaning a BBC pilot show that literally derailed a TV series for 30 years. The problem sh- show, created in 1953, unfortunately featured in a derailed model train live on oh, air. No. I know. <laughs> Audrey wrote, and the BBC thought it it is child's play to operate a model railway and did not allow enough time for the rehearsals. Paul Thomas did not return to our TV until ITV series um, was created in 1984. And I just have an interesting thing. Uh, mm-hmm. My aunt and uncle, Auntie Meyer and Uncle Jeff, um, used to live in Birmingham. I'm, right. They're no longer alive. And they knew the Reverend Audrey. Oh, wow. He was a, he was, he was a near neighbour. Oh, yes. fantastic. Yes. yes. So do they have books? Do they have signed editions of the books? Um I don't know, to be honest. Missed opportunity. I really don't there. know. That's that's, but that's great. So mm. I feel sorry for for the Reverend Audrey because obviously he's had to wait thirty years without getting any royalties from that yes, very successful exactly. program. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at least he got Ringo Starr to to, to narrate. That's true. Which they wouldn't have done if it was uh, in nineteen fifty three. Right. So a new children's laureate has been announced. So congratulations to Joseph Coelho, who takes over from Cressida Cowell. So Coelho will assume the laureateship, which comes with a £15,000 bursary and is sponsored by Waterstones. And he'll stay children's laureate until 2024. 
So Joseph Cowell, if you don't know him, is the poet and playwright and author. And he is quite keen to promote single parents as about 40% of marriages end in divorce. So his latest book, Luna Loves Library Day, is about a little girl who enjoys going to the library with her dad. And it's just subtly mentioned at the start that the dad and the little girl don't live together anymore. So I think that's quite good because children want to read about families in circumstances like mm. themselves. So Quelo is the first black man to hold the post and one of his aims is to get everybody writing poetry, young and old alike, which I've got to say is a fabulous idea. He's also vowed to complete his library marathon, aiming to join a library in each of the 209 library authorities, because he believes that libraries made him a writer and makes communities thrive. So here, here. And Julian, I've got to say, I have been to a fantastic library recently in Chester, Ah, now, yes. that's your hometown. It have is. you been recently to the library in Chester? I haven't, no, no. And I haven't been to the Grodner Museum either for, for a long time. Oh, right. Well, the library has been updated big time. It's now not called a library. It's called oh, right. the Story House, which oh. I'm, gi- I'm giving thumbs down for that. But anyway, it's theatre, cinema, library, coffee shop, hubbing community centre. It's fantastic. Benjamin Zephaniah is the poet in residence. And I think I'm not sure what that means. But what you've got is you've got brightly coloured walls with his sort of little bits from his poems sort of written all over it. And when we went, which is in the middle of a, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon, it was full of kids working on the benches and it had a fantastic atmosphere and I've got to say that is what libraries should be about it's not about being quiet it's marvellous no indeed actually I, I think maybe I have is it is, is is that the one just a bit down from the town hall yes it is oh yes I have yes it's yes the big complicated yes. like, cinema so, so inside new, yes I that's have that's right um it, I, I think actually gosh here's my memory um because I went to um, stay with my friends Manuel and Stan um who live uh, live in Chester and um we went there, um, and uh, yes, because it was yeah, very impressive. I think it probably um, wasn't long after it had been opened. No, it is a fantastic oh, place. Oh, so it is impressive. A place. Yes, yeah, really impressive. Yeah. So I know the library don't have much money um, at the moment going into them. They mm. are essential for communities. Mm. And if they are like this one, they're mm. such a vibrant hub that, yes. oh, you know, it'd make any town be proud to have a, yes. a library indeed like that. no that, no it is it is yeah. it's fair. Well, well i mean there's a lot of uh, there are many reasons to go and visit chester but then that's certainly one to be added to this as yeah, well very much yes, so indeed well uh, recently we um we reported the sad news um that the costa book awards is going to be no more uh, and out of the blue we've now been uh, we now found out another book prize is about to bite the dust and this time the book trust um who is behind the blue peter book awards has confirmed it's ending the prize after 20 years. What a shame. Which, I, yes, great shame. I, it was first awarded in, in the year 2000 for books published in, in 1999. And the Blue Peter Awards recognised and celebrated what it called the best authors, the most creative illustrators and the greatest reads for children. Now, the winners of the 2022 awards, which will sadly be the last, were Invented by Animals, uh, which was written by Christian Dorian and, and Gozia Herber, which is published by Wide-Eyed Editions. And that won the best book with facts 
Prize, and The Last Bear by Hannah Gold and Levi Pinfold, which has been published by Harper Children's, um, took home the prize for Best Story. Now, the past winners include a roundup of great names, uh, um, uh, not surprisingly, Michael Morpurgo, Catherine Rundle, Oliver Jeffers, and, and Liz Pichon. Now, almost all the winners of the prize benefited from immediate boosts to their sales, and since the prize changed to its current format of two prizes, which is the best of the best story and the best a book with facts, and it was changed in 2013, those 20 books have collectively sold over a staggering 1.1 million copies in print for um, a combined value of £5.1 million here in the UK. And that is all um, possibly in danger. Yes, that is very, that is very sad. Um, Mm. But... On a more positive note, I was reading that Scholastic, uh, the publisher Scholastic, sponsors something called the Lollies, which is Laugh Out Loud Book Awards. And um, since the announcement about the Blue Peter, um, the cancellation of the Blue Peter Awards, Mm -hmm. they've decided to sort of um, jazz up the the Lollies and, um, excuse me, and they'll be uh, extending that to take up interest in best books for kids. And what's really great about the lollies is that actually they're voted for by children themselves. That's really fantastic. And, and then I think what they should really do, I've just thought about this, yeah. if they should really select the coolest of the books and then that can be called the ice lollies. Ah! was terrible. <laughs> You can always hear the worst jokes here on Turning Pages. Thank you for listening to Turning Pages here on River Radio, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. Now, coming up, we'll be exploring the best summer reads this century. But first, Heather has been chatting to Tilly to find out what she has in store in her Tilly's Fiction Addiction Roundup, which includes, among others, as I mentioned before, Conversation with Friends, written by Sally Rooney, uh, which is now being televised. So let's listen to the two girls chatting. Tilly, thank you for joining us today. What's your book? So I want to talk about Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney this week. So it's her debut novel, but you might have heard of Normal People as well, or recently watched either BBC adaptation, both books. I chose this book because it had just been adapted for the screen, and also I'd been putting off reading Sally Rooney for so long, so I felt like I wanted to finally share my thoughts. I know she divides lots of readers out there, so I thought it was an interesting book this time around. So it was so conversations with friends is her debut, and it was normal people that took the world by storm, didn't yeah, it? That yeah. just <laughs> won every award going. That's next on my list. Okay, so what is it about Sally Rooney that you think captures the zeitgeist of of today? It's quite bluntly written, I think. I think, and it's very like on the nose and. You know, it's quite raw, I think, all the relationships and emotions that she talks about are things that people feel and not necessarily the good side of humans, I guess, just like the realistic side. And it's quite jarring to see it in writing and be like, oh, you know, not everyone's a great person and I would have acted that way. So it's quite an interesting look on relationships and real life that isn't necessarily changed through a lens to make it seem like everything's okay. It's very realistic. Have you watched the television programme? normal people or conversations with friends conversations yeah, so got, with friends 
Yeah, I got I got halfway through and I had to give up. It, it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. I felt like the characters didn't have as much chemistry as they did in the book and I gave up after four episodes or so. But I have heard mixed reviews on it and I would like to give it another go, I think, at yeah. some point. Life's too short to watch bad television. I know, but I really, really enjoyed the book near the end. So I feel like maybe the end of the show would be better. It didn't hook me like I thought it would. Ah, right. But the book has hooked you. So that yeah. what's the storyline? It follows Frances and her best friend, who is also her ex-girlfriend, Bobby. And they meet a married couple called Nick and Melissa. So the plot is very centred around what happens within these four people, especially when Frances and Nick begin a relationship on the side. And it explores all the emotions that come with that. Also how it affects the different dynamics between like a group of friends. And then there's like exes and also there's a marriage there as well. So it's just everything that happens when two relationships collide, but other relationships are also involved as well. Did you find it funny? Is it, is it, is it a funny book? Yeah, I think the characters are quite witty. Some of them are quite pretentious, but you have to get over that. I think one of my friends, Joe, actually, he was he was reading it and he was, I hate all the characters. And I was like, me too, but I think you're meant to hate them. Right. He's like, none of them have any resigning, you know, qualities. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I think that's the point. I think Francis and Bobby are quite witty and a massive part of their character, I think, that they're quite quick and they don't hold back and they tell it how it is. So is it a quick read? I would say so. The start took me a while to get into it, but near the end, it's flying through. So yeah, I'd say medium read. Right. Okay. What appeals to you? What was what? What is it about the book that really captures your your imagination? I think, like I was saying earlier, it's quite a raw look at human emotion and how relationships are so complex and how your past can affect your present. Because Bobby's relationship with Francis does affect Francis's new relationship with Nick. And, you know, there's like different dynamics with her being her ex as well. I think it's also like, it's also a queer book in that way, which I really like. So obviously Francis and Bobby used to date. It's like an extra layer of emotion there. And it just adds a new dimension to just being about heterosexual couples. I think that's a really nice twist as well. Right. So I was reading that you could either read it as a sort of like a romantic novel, or you could read it as a feminist tract. Did you get a view that it could be read in both in two different ways? Yeah, I mean, I've never thought of it that way, but I think that's that's kind of bang on, really. I think romantic in a sense of, it's not like a romance novel. I would assume romance novels to be, you know, everything perfect, happily ever after, whereas this is more romance of like the realities of romance and sort of like a messy relationship, which I guess is, you know, reality. But yeah, I guess it is a feminist retelling as well. Not retelling, but a feminist book. They do describe themselves as, as feminists, the two main characters. And I think there's quite a lot of politics interwoven as well. They both do like stand up, not comedy, but like spoken word. And that's quite political. And I think part of a reason that Nick really gets on with Frances is because she's quite political. And obviously he is older. It's got some like feminist tropes and some like, politics in there as well. Brilliant, brilliant. So you've chosen a part of the book. So can you just introduce that reading for us? Yeah. So it's literally the start of the novel. So, you know, page one, chapter one, and it delves right into the plot and introduces all the main characters. Um, I would say that it sort of sets the scene, but I think a big part of Sally Rooney's books are that you don't really need to set the scene. It sort of just delves right in straight away and you just have to keep up with what's going on. But yeah, it is the first page of the first chapter to give you guys a good taste of what's to come. Brilliant. Excellent. So we'll hear that now. Bobby and I first met Melissa at a poetry night in town where we were performing together. Melissa took our photographs outside. 
with Bobby smoking and me self-consciously holding my left wrist in my right hand as if I was afraid the wrist was going to get away from me. Melissa used a big professional camera and kept lots of different lenses in a special camera pouch. She chatted and smoked while taking the pictures. She talked about our performance and we talked about her work, which we'd come across on the internet. Around midnight, the bar closed. It was starting to rain then, and Melissa told us we were welcome to come back to her house for a drink. We all got into the back of a taxi together and started fixing up our seatbelts. Bobby sat in the middle, with her head turned to speak to Melissa, so I could see the back of her neck and her little spoon-like ear. Melissa gave the driver an address in Monkstown, and I turned to look out of the window. A voice came on the radio to say the words, 80s, pop, classics. Then a jingle played. I felt excited, ready for the challenge of visiting a stranger's home, already preparing compliments and certain facial expressions to make myself seem charming. The house was a semi-detached red brick with a sycamore tree outside. Under the streetlight, the leaves looked orange and artificial. I was a big fan of seeing the insides of other people's houses, especially people who were slightly famous like Melissa. Right away, I decided to remember everything about her home so I could describe it to our other friends later and Bobby could agree. When Melissa let us in, a little red spaniel came racing up the hall and started barking at us. The hallway was warm and the lights were on. Next to the door was a low table where someone had left a stack of change, a hairbrush and an open tube of lipstick. There was a Montegliani print hanging over the staircase, a nude woman reclining. I thought, this is a whole house. A family could live here. We have guests, Melissa called down the corridor. So that was a great reading. So when you sort of reflect back on the book, what what sort of surprised you about it most when you were preparing for our conversation today? I think it is a new style of writing for me. It's very stream of consciousness. It's very, you know, what, what everyone's thinking, you know, that sort of style I didn't think I would enjoy that but it's definitely a shift but I think I did get into it after a while Sally Rooney doesn't also put any speech marks in her novels which can be quite confusing but I think that just adds to the stream of consciousness style and I actually quite enjoyed this like stylistic choice after a while it was you just sort of just read very easily and I don't really think we need speech marks (laughs) anyway in books now and I think I definitely prefer like the latter half of the novel and it had some quite good quotes and ideas about relationships that I found quite interesting, for sure. So read this book if you want what? I would say an interesting and honest look at modern and also queer relationships that aren't just romantic, but also platonic and between friends. Quick pacing across a variety of settings. And I think characters you will love to hate because they are quite unlikable at times. Um, they're quite pretentious, but they're, you know, also witty. I found a really good quote, actually, from the literary review that I think sums up quite well. OK, yeah. So they've said this book explores the collective, socially mediated nature of personal affection. We can't help but see people through the prism of their interactions with others, rendered here with rare skill and subtlety. Ah, I think that sums it up quite well. And that, does it inspire you to read her other books? 
Yes. So I was actually staying at my girlfriend's the other night and she had normal people on the side and I couldn't sleep. So I went and I picked it up and yeah, I've already read three chapters or so. I woke up and she was like, have you started normal people? And I was like, yes, I have. <laughs> yes. That is the next book I'm going to read. Brilliant. Fantastic. Sally Rooney's obviously made this huge impact on, on our reading world at the moment. So I'm delighted that you enjoyed it. Yeah, I just hope I can do normal people next time as well. Thank you, guys. I feel about that one as well. That would be brilliant. Excellent. Tilly, thank you so much. The voice (gasps) of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think Beat comes next on the list. And in case you've just uh, had one of those funny moments, this is Turning Pages. Just to remind you, you're here on River Radio, your book programme. Now, thank you for listening. And if you've just joined uh, joined us, we have missed you. But never fear, you can listen again to our podcast from whichever podcast service you use. All you've got to do is search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and listen whenever and wherever you like. Now, please do like our podcasts um, when you come across them. It really does help um, if you do like us, uh, as it helps push us up the ratings. Now, River Radio has a range of excellent programmes that you can listen to, ranging from music programmes to talk shows, as well as to cultural shows such as your very own Turning Pages. So why not make a regular date with us on Turning Pages? We broadcast every Wednesday between 11 uh, in the morning and and 12 noon, and the programme is repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3pm. Yes, and we do want your book news and your suggestions for Goodreads, so you can always contact us, so... My email is heather at river.radio and you can get hold of Julian through his email address, which is julian at river.radio. Indeed it is. Very simple to remember. So this week we have a glittering theme. Well, it's gold in any way, as Julian and I will be looking at two books to do with gold. But before we do that, we are going to go back in time and discuss the summaries of the century. So some years ago, For some years, you can spot one book that's on every other sun lounger, a book that dominates the nation's summer reading. And so we thought it would just be a good idea to take a look back from the year 2000 to see what books have caught the summer reading imagination. Um, It's based on the Times bestseller list, which is compiled from Nielsen Bookscan. So which ones have you read? Which ones do you fancy reading? And if any of them passed you by at the time, you can always pick them up now. So you can. Yeah. So what are we going to start with? Well, we're going to start off with the year 2000. And of course, well, not of course, it's Bridget Jones's diary. And I can't what a, believe that's the year 2000. I know. I know. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Year 2000. So yeah, oh, 22 years ago. I mean, it's incredible. And it was, and what greater icon can you have for the 1990s and early 2000s than Bridget Jones herself, the poor old hapless 30 something, perpetually single, uh, the perpetual single Londoner became the face of a new wave of what became known as chick lit um, when Bridget Jones's diary was published and it, it, and it chronicles her relationship with two men. In 2000 um, there, 
was the, the sequel um, that was The Summer Read, Bridget Jones and the Edge of Reason, which follows her jealously spurred adventures when she suspects her boyfriend, Mark Darcy, of having an affair. Now, just as full of mishaps, misguided self-improvement, and of course, fags by the packet load and booze um, by the caseload, um, as in the first book, but featuring a supposedly spiritual trip to Thailand. The Edge of Reason made a per- perfect beach reading in 2000, and it still does to this day, Heather. Absolutely, it does. It's great fun. Now, five years or so later on, such was the undying excitement about Dan Brown's mystery thriller that it barely left the bestseller list all through 2004 and 2005. So it could be the pick of either of those summer years. Um, Of course, I'm talking about The Da Vinci Code. And within five years, it had sold 800, sorry, 80 million copies. And the consequences of that boom can still be seen in every charity shop (laughs) in the country today, I fear. So the Da Vinci Code got everybody talking on holiday about Mary Magdalene, the Holy Grail, the Knights Templar. And regardless of his literary merit, that's quite an achievement. But I think that's being a little bit snobby because selling 80 million copies is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, the only book that comes close to matching in popularity was Mark Haddon's, do you remember the curious incident of the dog in the night time? Yes. So you couldn't have got a more different book. Um, no, very true. Of, yeah, very anyway. true. I mean, I have to say, I, I have read the Dan Brown uh, books, and, and they are a bit of hokum, but, but it's enjoyable hokum. The only thing that he gets very irritating though is is silly mistakes. Um, when um, gosh, Doctor What is name? I've forgotten his name now. The the hero of the book. He's staying at the Ritz, and he's going to the Louvre. But the actual um, journey he takes now. From the Ritz to the Louvre is probably no more than a 10-minute walk. But the way Dan Brown describes it, it's something like a 40-minute uh, ride in a car. So really sloppy things like that is very Well, annoying. you know those taxi drivers in Paris? They're, yeah. always, they're always trying to get the better on the tourists. Well, no, what, it was worse. It was actually a police car taking him. <laughs> so even the copper didn't... Oh, Le Flick didn't know where he was going, probably. Anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a side issue. Now, the, in 2009, uh, one of the publishing phenomenon was was the very interesting and curious um, book The Time Traveller's Wife, written by Audrey Nif- uh, Nifnegger and it was published by Vintage um, and it hit the heights at that time. Now the premise I have to say is very odd it's a, it's a man um, with a chromosomal disorder that makes him travel in time against his will curiously losing his clothes in the process but I hope that he appears at the other, uh, wherever he's going, at least in his underwear so that doesn't, so he doesn't frighten all <laughs> Horses. However, Audrey Niffenegger's um, raunchy, heart-wrenching um, love story simply works. Now, Henry, who's the hero of the story, time uh, hopping means that he meets Claire when she is a child, already knowing that one day he's going to marry, marry her, which sounds must admit, a bit, bit creepy, um, but actually, funny enough, it, it isn't. Meanwhile, Claire spends much of her life waiting for Henry to return after his random disappearances. 
um, in his underpants. Um, then thousands of hearts were broken in, um, for her in 2009 when the book took uh, the charts by storm, prompted by the success of the film adaptation, which starred Eric um, Banner playing Henry and Rachel McAdam, uh, McAdams, I beg your pardon, playing Claire. And it has really a lasting power. And, uh, and now um, uh, I've, I've discovered there's a new adaptation about to land on our television screens. Yes, great, great book, though. Really, really good book. So just a year later, so 2010, yes. what was it? It was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo yes. by Dick Larson, published by McElhose Press. And it was seen everywhere. You could not move, could you? Hotels, nope. Nope. airport terminals, the beach. It was amazingly successful. So the Swedish writer Stig Larsson, he sort of created a new kind of crime fiction with this international bestseller. So an investigative journalist, Michael Blomqvist, Blomqvist, tries to solve the mystery of a missing girl with the help of Lisbeth Salander, a computer hacker with the dragon tattoo of the title. Now, she had faced horrific abuse and is out for revenge. So horror abuse, whether um, fascist or misogynistic, are at the heart of this gripping read. So it's not for the faint-hearted. The book was translated into English in 2008, uh, but 2010 was really its big year. And then the following year, of course, there was a film uh, adaptation with Daniel Craig um, starring um, in the uh, Blomqvist uh, role. Role. Yeah. Yes, I, I have to say, I mean, I haven't seen the film, but I had read um, read the book um, anyway, and in fact, it, it it's, it's a trilogy, on. isn't it? Yes, yeah. there's, a, there's a trilogy because there's um, on top of it, the second one was um, the girl who played with um, uh, who kicked a hornet's nest, and the girl who played with fire. And I have to say, um, the the girl with the dragon tattoo. And um, when I read it, and I've, I've got the hardback editions, and your hair stood on end, uh, I, yes. really. And and it was mm. again, it was almost every single chapter was there was that gripping um episode that you you, you know and you just crikey you know what's gonna happen next i'm really absolutely yeah. fantastic and also christopher mcclehoe is a very very gifted publisher he was ama- um, yeah an amazing yeah, I, publisher. I, yes I, I met him because in fact actually I, I i was selling the book um and also when uh when he was the md of harville and uh, he he has a great talent of finding um uh, he specializes in european literature yes. um in and then he buys it and then buys the rights and then translates yeah, I remember English. one Christmas he published a book called Norwegian Wood which yes. is different ways of chopping wood why mm. would that be a bestseller mm. but it mm. was it is just mm. he's an amazing publisher yeah. I agree he knows yeah. he yeah. can spot a good exactly and, yeah. and he sort of um, I won't say invented Swedish crime drama but basically with um, Stig Larsson, he sort of started that rolling yes. success of yeah. all those yeah. books now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Yeah, really Indeed, good. indeed, indeed. Now, of course, we come on to 2012 and who uh, we can't forget, Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. Oh, James, published really? by Arrow. Can we not yes. forget? <laughs> no, 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 no. Apologies, apologies, but it simply has to be included because Fifty Shades of Grey was a publishing sensation in more ways than one, and I'll, I'll mention a little bit about that at the end. Um, um, and it, 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 it was it was the book of choice in 2012 to stick into your uh, bag and take it on holiday. Now, whether through boldly displayed paperbacks or 
discreet Kindle versions, the whips and chains of Mr. Christian Grey made it onto the beach. And quite a few bedrooms, I'm sure, as well. Now, really, who could blame young Anna for being taken in by a billionaire boss, even if he had a creepy red room and a penchant for legal agreements? Now, though times have changed, those in search of a raunchy beach read will more likely turn to Sarah J. Mars's fantasy series, which is A Court of Thorns and Roses. Now, when I say about uh, going back to um, E.L. James, is why why the Fifty Shades of Grey was it is quite interesting. Yeah. In fact, it was published as an ebook in Australia, and that is where it, it was, was self published. Self self published. Yes. yes. Self published. And, yes. it, and it just languished there and it was just bumping along until somebody from Random House, I believe, found it and said this is something and then took it in print and then it rocketed away. So... Well, actually, it was already... I'm going to I'm going to change that story slightly okay. because she, it was a massive success as a self-published book. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Exactly. It, I mean, it was, was huge. It was so when Random wasn't... House was interested, it was yes. because it was already a... Yes. But but interesting that it would, that it was actually, it was a self-published book. Yes. Um, and, and there was sort of e-versions that before yes. it, it was a print version that it hadn't been touched yes. by a publisher up until then. Yes. Anyway. So lots of, uh, lots of authors say, oh, I've written this book. I've put it out mm. on, um, on, um, on e-book online. Mm. I'd now like a publisher to uh, to take it on board and really unless it's been as successful as the el james and mm-hmm. sold hundreds of thousands of copies publishers don't want to touch something that's already no. been out there no, so that's this right. is very much the exception yeah but it, it proved is. Uh, it is how successful it could be yeah so in 2014 we had the goldfinch by donna tart remember that so donna tart seemed to take a sort of decade to write a novel and each of them has been eagerly awaited since her first one and let's be honest probably her best book which was the secret history which was a fantastic um, success the goldfinch is her third novel and possibly her most divisive. It was sold to Bloomsbury for the uh, eye-watering sum of a million dollars. And it did win the Pulitzer Prize. So uh, there's lots of positives there. But some critics have been brutal, claiming it's full of cliches, clunky plot points and stock characters. And at times it does lack sophistication. But this story is about 13-year-old Theo Decker. And the day a bomb changed her, her changed his life, and his relationship with a painting that spans many years, and it is utterly gripping. And at a whopping seven hundred and eighty-two pages long, I think it'll last you a full fortnight on the beach if you choose uh, the goldfinch. Mm, indeed, I think so. Now, and two years later, the girl on the train by Paula Hawkins, oh, which yes. published by Black Swan, was hitting um, the sweet spot. Yes, as you as you remember, psychological thrillers um, with unreliable narrators are always fun, and the runaway success of um, Gong Girl taught us that. Yet, uh, the girl on the train gives no fewer than three unreliable narrators, all connected. It turns out to one man. Um, to say much more would be to give it away, but suffice to say, the twist. Twists, turns and slow revelations had us all on the edge of our deck chairs. And like Gone Girl, it got a blockbuster treatment in 2016 with Emily Blunt playing the recovering alcoholic Rachel, whose observations from the train fuel the shocking events that follow. And if you didn't see the film then and you have avoided the spoilers, it's still a perfect holiday read today. Yeah, great, uh, great book, great book. Uh, Now, the very... 
one and only actually non-fiction book that hits this uh, this list is Sapiens by Yuval Noah um, Harari, published by uh, by Vintage. Do you remember that? Um, no, I no. don't. No, I got I got a copy in 2017. Thousands of us decided to travel through time from the Sun Lounger with this remarkable, ambitious book called Sapiens. So, moving from the Big Bang right through to 3017, Harari argues that the appearance of Homo sapiens with their newfangled language and superior cognitive powers was a disaster for the rest of the planet because, of course, we immediately set about exploiting that. Yet language and worse agriculture were also a disaster for us, he says. So this book is packed full of such big ideas and written with power and clarity. So it's no surprise that it's set uh, that it's so many of us set aside our fictional tales for the story of our species. Uh, it wasn't for everyone. And The Couple Next Door by Shari Lapina, which was a gripping thriller about a missing baby, was incredibly successful that year too. Mm, interesting. Now we come on to Normal People by Sally Rooney, which is published by um, Faber. And it may feel as though Sally Rooney mania has been with us for uh, ever. But in fact, the reality of it is it only started in, in 2019. That was the phenomenon um, that the phenomenon took off. Normal People, um, her second novel, follows young Marianne and Connell through sixth form and college as they move in and out of each other's lives. Fail to communicate properly, but never stop loving each other. It's a pacey tearjerker, uh, but the novel also makes astute observations about class. And for a generation of readers, it seemed to sum up the uncertainties of their lives. Now, the BBC adaptation um, starring Paul Meskell and Daisy Edgar-Jones made lockdown sexy and gave sales a second wind in 2020. Yes, and obviously conversations with friends we were discussing with Tilly earlier on. So Sally Rooney has definitely hit the, the zeitgeist at the moment she has yes and finally our last book which is last year sorrow and bliss by meg mason published by uh weidenfeld and nicholson which is the book that hit the summer bestseller list it's a book about mental illness which doesn't sound so very summary but the aussie meg mason's uh book was the big hit last year martha freel has set recently separated from her husband patrick and this is the story of how she got there so her dysfunctional artist parents rich cousins cokehead first husband and finally patrick who supports martha through breakdowns even when she's horrible to him it might seem very dark but it's hilarious and it's moving and indian knight told readers read it it's unforgettable and they must have listened because it the book stayed firmly on the bestseller list while we all emerged through lockdown last year Yes, indeed. Well, a quick run through of the books that we've recommended for the uh, best summer reads of the century include Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason, published by um, Picador and written by Helen Fielding. Uh, The Da Vinci Code by uh, Dan Brown, published by Corgi. The Time Traveller's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger, Vintage Publications. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stig Larson, published by McElhoes Press. Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James, published by Arrow. The Goldfinch by Donna Tart, published by Abacus. The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, published by Black Swan. Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, published by Vintage. 
The Couple Next Door by Shari Lapina. Uh, Normal People by Sally Rooney, published by Faber. And Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Well, that was a great selection, I think. It was. And lots of books there that I still think well worth reading. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, keeping the uh, the summer reading theme going. So now we're moving on, on to our theme of recommended books and we are golden. Well, at least our theme is. So, Julian, what have you chosen? Well, I've selected one, well, uh, Goldfinger by Ian Fleming. But that is just perfect. It's, Isn't it just, you yes. You have to choose that. Yeah, absolutely, yes. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't not, should no. I put it this way. Now, Goldfinger is the seventh Bond uh, book, which opens up in Miami um, when James Bond finds himself en route to London after closing a Mexican um, heroin smuggling ring. Now, Bond meets Julius Dupont, who's an American businessman whom he had met and gambled with in Casino Royale. Now, Dupont had been playing canasta with another hotel guest by the name of Oric Goldfinger and he, DuPont, is convinced Goldfinger has been cheating and asks Bond to keep an eye on him. I think that you always know when it's a baddie. Because yes, they, they cheat. <laughs> when they start cheating, yes, cheat exactly. at cards or whatever it <laughs> <Yes>. is. <laughs> um, now, it was written in January and February uh, uh, 1958 and published the following year. Wow. And the story, yeah, and the story follows uh, centers on the investigation of uh, the British secret agent um, James Bond. Um, <clears throat> And he was um, uh, investigating gold smuggling activities um, and, in fact, investigating none other than Oric Goldfinger, who MI6 suspected of being connected to SMERSH, the Soviet counterintelligence organisation. Now, as well as establishing the background to the smuggling operation, Bond uncovers a much larger plot. Goldfinger plans to steal the gold reserves of the United States from Fort Knox. Now, following a round of golf between Goldfinger and Bond, Goldfinger invites Bond back to his mansion near Reculver in Kent, where Bond meets Goldfinger's manservant, Oddjob, for the first time. Now, let's listen to um, a bit of a reading by Mike, Mike Burton. The service door opened. The chauffeur stood in the frame. He still wore his bowler hat and his shiny black gloves. He gazed impassively at Goldfinger. Goldfinger crooked a finger. The chauffeur approached and stood within the circle by the fire. Goldfinger turned to Bond. He said conversationally, This is my handyman. He smiled thinly. That is something of a joke. Oddjob, show Mr Bond your hands. He smiled again to Bond. I call him Oddjob because that describes his functions on my staff. The Korean slowly pulled off his gloves and came and stood at arm's length from Bond and held out his hands palm upwards. Bond got up and looked at them. They were big and fat with muscle. The fingers all seemed to be the same length. They were very blunt at the tips and the tips glinted as if they were made of yellow bone. Turn them over and show Mr Bond the sides. There were no fingernails. Instead there was his same yellowish carapace. The man turned the hand sideways. Down each edge of the hands was a hard ridge of the same bony substance. Bond raised his eyebrows at Goldfinger. Goldfinger said, We will have a demonstration. He pointed at the thick oak banisters that ran up the stairs. The rail was a massive six inches by four thick. The Korean obediently walked over to the stairs and climbed a few steps. He stood with his hands at his sides, gazing across at Goldfinger like a good retriever. Goldfinger gave a quick nod. 
Impassively, the Korean lifted his right hand high and straight above his head and brought the side of it down like an axe across the heavy, polished rail. There was a splintering crash and the rail sagged, broken through the centre. Again, the hand went up and flashed down. This time it swept right through the rail, leaving a jagged gap. Splinters clattered down onto the floor of the hall. The Korean straightened himself and stood to attention, waiting for further orders. There was no flush of effort in his face and no hint of pride in his achievement. Goldfinger beckoned. The man came back across the floor. Goldfinger said, His feet are the same, the outside edges of them. Odd job, the mantelpiece. Goldfinger pointed at the heavy shelf of carved wood above the fireplace. Mm. It was about seven feet off the ground, six inches higher than the top of the Korean's bowler hat. Kachaha? Yes, take off your coat and hat. Goldfinger turned to Bond. Poor chap's got a cleft palate. I shouldn't think there are many people who understand him besides me. Bond reflected how useful that would be. A slave who could only communicate with the world through his interpreter. Better even than the deaf mutes of the harems. More tightly bound to his master. More secure. Odd Job had taken off his coat and hat and placed them neatly on the floor. Now he rolled his trouser legs up to the knee and stood back in the wide, well-planted stance of the judo expert. He looked as if a charging elephant wouldn't put him off balance. Better stand back, Mr Bond. The teeth glittered in the wide mouth. This blow snaps a man's neck like a daffodil. Goldfinger drew aside the low settee with a drink tray. Now the Korean had a clear run. But he was only three long steps away. How could he possibly reach the high mantelpiece? Bond watched, fascinated. Now the slanting eyes in the flat yellow mask were glinting with a fierce intentness. Faced by such a man, thought Bond, one could only go down on one's knees and wait for death. Goldfinger lifted his hand. The bunched toes in the polished soft leather shoes seemed to grip the ground. The Korean took one long crouching stride with knees well bent and then whirled off the ground. In mid-air his feet slapped together like a ballet dancer's, but higher than a ballet dancer's have ever reached, and then the body bent sideways and downwards and the right foot shot out like a piston. There came a crashing thud. Gracefully the body settled back down on the hands now splayed on the floor. The elbows bent to take the weight and then straightened sharply to throw the man up and back on his feet. Odd job stood to attention. This time there was a gleam of triumph in his flat eyes as he looked at the three-inch jagged bite the edge of his foot had taken out of the mantelpiece. And now, needless to say, um, later in the book, Bond gets tortured by Odd Job, and it is a circular saw that threatens to divide Bond rather than the laser beam in the film. Uh, in a bid to save himself from a grisly end, Bond offers to work for Goldfinger, and though initially dismissed by Goldfinger, he accepts the offer. Now, in common with his other Bond stories, Fleming used the names of people he knew or knew um, throughout the story, including the book's eponymous villain, who he named after the architect Erno Goldfinger. Now, on learning of the use of his name, Erno Goldfinger threatened to sue the author before the matter was settled out of court. Now, Fleming also uses his own experiences within the book. The round of golf played with Goldfinger was based on a 1957 tournament at the Berkshire Golf Club in which Fem- F- 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 Fleming partnered um, Peter Thompson 
the winner of the Open Championship. Oh, he was obviously good at golf then, getting that yeah, in. <laughs> indeed, exactly. Yeah, squeeze that one in. And on its release, Goldfinger went to the top of the bestseller list, not surprisingly. And the novel was broadly well received by the critics. Now, Goldfinger was serialised as a daily story and as, also as a comic strip in the Daily Express. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Before it became uh, the third James Bond feature film um, in the Eon Productions series, which was released in 1964, with um, Sean Connery starring as Bond. Um, the plot within the book does diverge quite a bit from the film. Our job does come to a sticky end, but not by being electrocuted by his hat, as in the film. And Goldfinger's end is not by being sucked out of the aircraft due to depressurization, though depressurization does happen in the book. So don't just enjoy the film, do read the book because there's a lot in there that is not in the film, of course. And I believe that Vintage Classics still uh, has it, um, Goldfinger in print. So pop along to your local independent bookshop and buy your copy. Yeah, it's actually really good, isn't it, to look at the difference between the books and the films and what they've picked out and yes, and what um, what the 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 author has felt was more more important. Um, Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, yeah really, truly, truly so. So I love the fact that he used, because he had an argument, I think, with Erno Goldfinger, who was, uh, I think Ian Fleming was a bit of a, a traditionalist. Mm. And Erno Goldfinger came along and he was building all these quite modernist um, architectural pieces. And yes. there's one very close to where he lived. That's right, And he yes. had a huge argument with him about yeah. it. <laughs> and I think that's why you put him as the villain. Um, <laughs> the vi- yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think like a um, great revenge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so th- I mean, fancy threatening to sue. I mean, that's just. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. Um, it was a bit like. Um, um, uh, Hedy Lamar was was trying to um, um, attempt to um, sue Mel Brooks because of Blazing Saddles, where the character really? was Hedley Lamar. Oh. Yes, <laughs> and so she took great exception, and and she did sue Mel Brooks, but lost. Oh, yeah, brilliant! I think I think you can be too precious in this world. Yes, I think you can. <laughs> Mind you, also the same for um, the ice cream cherry Garcia. It was um, the Grateful Dead also sued. Um, I don't think they were successful either. No, I think yeah, but I think Blofeld. You know the uh, that marvelous cricket commentator Blofeld. Oh, yes. wasn't it? His father, and I think he loves that story. I know Henry Blofeld, and yes, Ernst Stavros Blofeld. Yes. <laughs> Yes, you expect Henry to do some, put on some sort of exaggerated, menacing voice. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's sad that he's not on the cricket commentary I know, anymore. I know. I know, it's great. Never mind. Oh, Got to give new people a chance, I suppose. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's a bit like Deborah said earlier bring people up, give them a hand and bring yes, people quite up. Right, yes, quite right, quite right. <laughs> so we, um, oh, we're talking just generally now about uh, about Goldfinger, because, of course, we've run out of time. Can you believe? Where does no. that hour go? I know, I know. Well, it's a bit like Deborah said this morning, oh, maybe we need a couple of hours. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> so I have prepared my book, but I'm going to keep it a secret because Good. 
I can use it another time. Yes, you can. You can spring it on us and go, surprise! (laughs) And then we'll have your book. When uh, when you're not looking, yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I know it. It it is shocking. It's it's uh, and I do you know? I think it's because of all of this inflation. Hours are shrinking. I think. I don't think they're sixty minutes anymore. I think they must be fifty minutes. I think we've lost a good ten minutes on our hour. So this is something that conservative leaders um, candidates should think about. Bring back our. 60 minutes bring back our time (laughs) anyway books we have been recommending today (laughs) right indeed so we we um we kick off with luna loves library day by joseph cello well it might be i'm not sure if it's cello is it it cello oh cello is it i don't know i don't know yeah no maybe it is Invented by Animals by Christiane Doran and Gossier Herber, published by Wide-Eyed Editions. I will, I'll just say at this point, you always give me the authors with the complicated names, I have to say. Well, I thought that was, (laughs) I thought I had the difficult one there. Yeah, that's very true. Last Bears by Hannah Gold and Levi Pinfold, published by Harper Children's. And Goldfinger by Ian Fleming, published by Vintage Classics. Super. So thank you to, uh, for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. We really enjoy your company. Uh, do tell your friends if you've enjoyed it. And do write to us and tell us your recommendations of great books to read. You can uh, get us on heather at river.radio. And listening to the radio and turning pages, of course, has never been easier. Uh, Now we're on DAB and you can catch our podcast at any time. And of course, we're always on every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Sunday afternoons between 2 and 3. Saturday afternoons. On Saturday afternoons. What did I say? Sunday. Sorry. Saturday Mm. afternoons. And you can catch us at any time as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio. So thank you for listening. And we'll um, look forward to you joining us again uh, next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, lad. Thank you. 